Hey, Politicology Plus, how you doing? We've missed you. Good to talk to you again. Got a whole bunch of people listening in from the main show today because we're releasing this episode to the public. And we wanted to give everybody a taste of what the Politicology Plus community gets on a regular basis, at least once a week. So to everybody listening in who's not a Politicology Plus subscriber, if you want more content like this and extra episodes, bonus conversations, strategy sessions over time, head over to politicology.com slash plus to subscribe today. On with the show. Hey, Politicology Plus. Uh, Okay, so the catalyst for this segment was uh, that earlier this week, I listened to this excellent um, conversation between Mustafa Suleiman and Sam Harris, where they were discussing Suleiman's new book, The Coming Wave. And he's a co-founder of DeepMind, um, which you may recognize as the as the the AI company. He also worked in British local government and at Google, where he worked on their large language models. He writes about how AI could unlock the secrets of the universe, cure diseases that have long eluded us, and create new forms of art and culture. Okay, a lot of people have derided that as hyperbolic, but he's also concerned about the potential negative effects that we quote, could create systems that are beyond our control and find ourselves at the mercy of algorithms that we don't understand. One of the reasons I thought this was such a useful conversation and his approach to AI was so um, was so uh, helpful is that he's not talking about the, you know, the maybe 10 years or 20 years distant future where we have artificial general intelligence or super intelligence, uh, but rather that there are, he is concerned about that, but so much oxygen has been uh, used talking about those concerns in a philosophical and abstract way that he believes we have completely neglected to address the immediate urgent concerns about the way our world is about to change in somewhere between six months and two years. This stuff is happening now, not in the distant future. So he's concerned that an existential threat to nation states risks so profound they may disrupt or even overturn the current geopolitical order. And it could lead to, quote, an immense AI-powered cyber attacks, automated wars that could devastate countries and engineered pandemics. And that's in addition to the flood of information pollution, disappearing jobs, and the potential for catastrophic accidents. There have been obviously tons of conversations about how AI could change the world down the line. Like him, I want to make sure we're keeping our eye on the more short-term risks. And earlier, Mike, you said you think we're already in a cold war with China. There's ongoing conflict in Ukraine. That's the potent, There's the potential threat that if Russia takes Ukraine, they might attempt to take a NATO state. There's been an ongoing conversation over a decade about the shift from conventional warfare to cyber warfare. AI can help in aid in those attacks. The Office of the director of national intelligence put out a report that AI systems can aid terrorist groups. Uh, they could use autonomous delivery vehicles guided with the help of AI systems to allow a single terrorist to strike dozens of targets at the same time. They fear that AI could create virtual terrorist training camps, allowing cells to connect experienced plotters with others. How does it change the way you think about the risk of conventional warfare aided by AI and these potential cyber conflicts? especially when AI can take on the heavy lifting for the energy grid hack, for example, or the nuclear arms hack that's been the greatest fear in cyber warfare. 
Um, and then after we think about these things, I want to turn to the political ramifications of how campaigns are are run and won, because this th- these aren't concerns that are that are distant or abstract. The technology is capable of doing this stuff now, and we have um, we have been talking about you know the very unrealistic pause on development of AI. We've we've been talking about you know what the dangers are. This guy takes a different approach, and says, actually, we should be talking about these things as weapons to be contained and to apply a containment lens to them as opposed to, um, as to, opposed to pausing development. So anyway, I, I'll lay all that on the table. Hagar, why don't you lead off about uh, especially the weaponization problem of, of AI? And I think the best way to think about this is the extraordinary leverage that is created for a single actor to inflict all kinds of chaos and carnage um, on their own with the use of these tools, many of which are open sourced and 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 available just a step or two behind what Google and Microsoft are currently running uh, on, pro- on proprietary systems. Right. Well, the, the person who whomever or whichever nation state. Uh, is most advanced in this issue is definitely going to have a major, major leg up when it comes to, you know, the balance of power and, 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 or, th- or, th- or the type of damage they could inflict in war. And so, by the way, this is, this is in part why the, the so-called godfather of AI, Jeffrey Hinton, stepped down from Google because he was really worried as to how things were going. And to sum that up very quickly, he was godfather of AI. Google acquired him and his company for $44 million. And he claimed in a in an interview that he didn't realize that when he got there, that a lot of the work they would be doing would be with the US government, you know, in bids with the US government, specifically with the Department of Defense. And he did it for 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 however long, but it really, really concerned him the entire time. And this is ultimately why he stepped down, because he was really worried where it could go. And a lot of his statements about the picture he paints for the future of AI and what terrifies him so much, which is ultimately that these robots could be smarter, as he says, than humans, and that you could have entire wars. He really focuses on this question of wars between nation states, that you could have entire wars led by with without a human. So they're automated. That are completely automated. So already you have drones, right? But um and a lot of the AI has has contributed to that. But but when you're talking about fleets of them and no human behind it, no human soldier, robot soldiers, things of this kind, suddenly war becomes easier to wage because you don't have the risk of losing your own troops. And not only does war become easier to wage, but obviously the one that's going to that's, that's going to feel more comfortable waging it is the one that's more powerful in this field against another side that isn't as powerful. And who's to say that that robot soldier, if it goes across, if I don't know if they're, and he painted this picture, by the way, that was, I know for me when it really hit me, he said, he said, what if you're an innocent and you're faced with this robot soldier and that robot soldier is is believes that it has to kill you and and you're trying to say hey no robot i'm not i'm the wrong person but you happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time so what kind of i mean it's so dystopian and so crazy and it's hard to envision and so now other experts have said oh no jeffrey hinton has gone off the deep end here because what he's saying could happen could never happen for 30 to 50 years and his argument was except that i said that about 
the things that we're doing now only a couple of years ago, that it would be that that it would take decades to reach and here we are. And so why would this be so far-fetched? We already have the tools to get there. And so that's why he and other um, AI uh, innovators and, and other major tech execs, including Elon Musk and so on, signed an open letter a few months ago calling for a, quote, six-month pause in AI innovation. Nobody really believes anything happened yeah. to that. I thought at the no. time it really it really raised a red flag. And I was my hope, at least, was that government, even though government tends to be behind on these things. They got people would, talking. Yeah. And that it would, the public discourse really grew and that I was hoping the government would really start and say, you know what, this picture that Jeffrey Hinton has painted and these these execs have painted is really quite scary. We need to get on regulation faster than we normally do when it comes to tech development. But I haven't seen that either, um, you know, and, and, and that's not going to be, that's not going to improve when you're in, in, in approaching an election year. They're not going to have time to waste on that. It's not wasted time, but that's how they're going to view it. it it's not going to move a voter. And to your point, on the, it's, on the contrary, it's, it's, but it is going to undermine campaigns as they move forward. So I haven't listened to, um, I didn't listen to the, to the interview you're talking about, but I did see the other articles I'll send it to and you. I, yeah. I believe this threat is very real. And I, I also believe the government will be behind on it. And that, um, that as we, and we can, we can talk about this in the next question, but, but when you're talking about AI and, um, and, and, and how easy it is to use, how easy it is for kids to use and what that could mean in an election year, it could be devastating. Very difficult to control. Totally. And we'll, fl- we'll flip over to the political in the, because it's really just mind boggling. Uh, we'll get there in a second. But one of the things that he um, zeroes in on in this book, and I've read write-ups of the book, I haven't read the book yet, that's on my list and also I'd like to have him on the show, is the, the combination of AI and SynBio, synthetic biology. And what we what like if you understand how these models work what they're doing is trying you know millions and millions of computations millions and millions of combinations of different uh of different molecules together to come up with novel compounds humans could never have imagined they could never have dreamt them up to see if they will have a specific effect on the human body that is that is why just as in every other single domain you can imagine, the combination of AI plus whatever the thing is, everything is a language. DNA is a language, math is a language, English is a language, just like photos are a language and videos are a language. These large language models learn how to, how to manipulate data and to come up with novel, uh, novel combinations and configurations that, um, that, that then can be evaluated for, you know, in the case of synthetic biology, can you come up with a virus that does X, Y, and Z, that spreads rapidly, that is immediate, that is highly fatal, and that can be built with the ingredients that are in your, your, you know, your kitchen sink, under your kitchen sink. Well, let's, let's see what it comes up with, right? The, the point is that these technologies, I don't know that they are containable. And what they're doing is, like, I, I think about, uh, and other people have said this: the 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 advent of AI as like the invention of electricity. That is how that is the scale that we're talking about. Um, it isn't what we've been used to, which is this relatively you know incremental uh, march towards progress, or even Moore's law in technology, which is sort of the doubling of uh, the du- doubling of compute with the half the scale every what is it uh, two years or four years whatever that cycle is we're talking about a completely different scale of rapid development with 
AI and and the leverage that's produced for a single person, um, which is why we have this chips war. And you know that's a completely different topic. But but I want people to understand the scale of of what we're talking about being possible in the hands of a single person. Um, and I don't know. So what he what what the author is talking about is these are very urgent and immediate threats that aren't far down the line at all that we need to act now to begin containing. And I'm just using synthetic biology as one example of innumerable examples uh, of what how powerful this technology can be when it's applied with, you know, some other some other problem. Mike, um, first, actually, react to all of this, and then we'll 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 pivot over to the political campaign question. Well, let me uh, look. There's there's two ways we can approach this. The first is we can all go jump off a bridge now because right, any any kid any kid with access to the rest you know ingredients in his mother's cabinet can kill us all. Or or we could take a different approach, which is uh, recognize that whenever there have been very large advancements in technology, there have always been sort of alarmist concerns about the end times and the dangers of that technology, always, throughout all, throughout all of history. Now, th- what is true about this is we are starting to grow in a quantum way, not just exponential. But I, I am old enough to remember two things. One is a lot of these same conversations were happening about the internet. Back when I was, you know, in high school, there's this thing coming online where everybody's going to be able to talk to anybody at any time, and they're going to be able to see all the same things. And I was like, well, what does that even mean? Like, what does that even mean? And I'm not suggesting that everything has been, you know, roses <laughs> and unicorns, but but my God, net benefit to humanity yeah. Yeah. since yeah. then, not even close, not even close, it's way better, not even close. The second is, as I was listening to this conversation, I was reminded of the movie. And again, this is in the way, way, way back machine, the movie War Games, right? Before Ferris oh, Bueller yes. was Ferris Bueller. And the, 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 at the end scenario, where in that lockdown and they're watching the computer run every possible algorithm, thousands, millions of different mathematics scenarios of outcomes, and none of them are good. And so what the machine ultimately says is, infamously or famously <laughs> the only way to win is not to play the game like the <laughs> rational r- r- the rational logistical conclusion to anything that is ultimately bad is to not engage in it and at some point there's some comfort in that there's some yeah. solace in that that yeah. we're not that we're not capable of as human beings yeah Right? Is because we are reactionary, we are emotional, we're worried about what the other side's going to do. Do we hit the trigger first? A machine doesn't think about it that way. All it says is, there's no way to win this, so let's play a game of tic-tac-toe. And it, it's that. It's, and again, th- 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 that could be very Pollyannish, but we, you, you, we've got to have a choice as human beings entering this new world. It's one or the other. Either it's all going to end tomorrow, or tomorrow's, you know, history tells us that with each technological advancement that while there have been setbacks by and large the the rate and the pace at which we have been able to advance has generally not generally overwhelmingly improved the standard of living and the quality of our lives and our experiences as human as a human species on this planet at least that's the way i'm going to choose yes another cup of coffee to look at this I agree. I am going to choose to look. I mean, I have to choose to look at it that way every single day, even despite all of the alarm bells going off in in my head. I carry that optimism with me because I know ah, about 
how promising this technology can be. Like we could cure all of these diseases at, as as fast as we are um, inventing new ones that could that could that could kill us with the ingredients in the kitchen sink, right? Okay, but um, let's pivot over to the campaign side of this because this is the this is the part that really got got me thinking. So, uh, in reading these uh, these write ups of his book and going down the rabbit hole. Uh, there was this excerpt published um, from a June article in the Scientific American by uh, a lawyer and a political scientist. And they're talking about the potential risks of using AI-driven political campaigns. And I've mentioned previously on the show, I think, that the FEC is currently um, considering whether to come up with some kind of regulation on the use of uh, of AI and political campaigns, Mike's got a hat smirk going on. As do horrible. I, because it's, ne- That's it's so yeah. cute. <laughs> it's so cute, right? Because like it's like, oh, the FBC is going to do something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's cute. Uh, but but uh, so the the hypothetical that they create here uh, is a tool called Clogger, and it can manipulate voting behavior to maximize the chances of a specific candidate winning an election. Clogger could generate personalized messages tailored to individual voters, use a method called reinforcement learning to refine its message strategies, and then adapt based on the voter's response. And it can do this for every single person in the voter file simultaneously in real time across a variety of channels that your data is already being tracked on. Okay, this this is unfathomable compared to the kinds of digital tools and technologies that I have worked with, that you have worked with on political campaigns of the highest level, because it's trying to maximize vote share, these messages could be non-political. They're not even political ads. It can be any kind of information that you would consume. It it can uh, it uses a voter's non-political passions, like sports teams or entertainment, to push for their candidate. It could uh, time uh, putting messages to coincide with its opponent's advertisements so that you don't see the opponent's advertisements. It could manipulate a voter's social media groups to make it seem like their family or friends support the candidate. And because their goal, its goal, this tool's goal, isn't to give you accurate information, it's it doesn't care about you know, for example, ChatGPT is now known for its hallucinations, where it makes up information that's not true. It doesn't matter if it's not true. AI systems don't care. They have no way of telling whether something is true or not. It's just information that is being deployed in service of a goal. And achieving that goal is the only thing it cares about. So, as a practitioner, how did you react to this hypothetical? Which is not so distant. No, look, I, I and I think I've said it on this show. I said it on a show. I think I said it on here on Politicology. I, this 2024 will be the last presidential campaign in history that will be run run largely by humans. This is this is the last one. Now that doesn't mean that there won't be human input, but for the most part, this is going to be it's going to be run by machines. And I, I'm not. I don't. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. Okay, be, because there's a certain precision, especially if we can hold on to. And that's the, this is a big if. But if we can hold on to what democracy is and what democracy means, and the processes by which we're trying to elect and choose people through a representative government, there's a hell of a good argument that this could be a lot more efficient. This could be a lot better to do it this way. 
Okay. Now the question becomes, can you really hold on to those guardrails when you have something that is in the service of something that is probably nefarious, which we know in politics, that's a big part of it. And that is a big question. But when you're able to divine that kind of information by everybody on the voter file, just at its face, just at its face, it starts to leave, uh, it starts to, there, there's, it's kind of like, um, let me put. Let me, let me use another comparison. My 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 son is a grad student at Berkeley. He's a data scientist. He's a, he's a graduate school there. So we talk about these scenarios a lot, especially because they use politics a lot because it's human mm. behavior, mm. and the human behavior is is you know until you start to see a trend line, it's hard to make good data. You you can guess at it. That's what an algorithm is trying to do. It's trying to anticipate what it is based off of previous events, right? Um. So so you look at baseball, for example you know, statistically, you can determine who's likeliest by a pretty good degree, which team is likely to win a 162 game season. But you don't just hit say, okay, well, the Dodgers are going to win this year, or the Yankees are going to win this year, because the the variable is, is human beings, right. you don't you don't know. And right. that's the same thing as democracy. Mm-hmm. You don't know. These are good predictors until as we say in baseball until they're not. The statistics are very good until they're not. And refining the ability to understand what voters want, which is what the algorithms are designed to do, is or at least that's the way campaigns work. Right. And I, I know I'm getting off a little bit, but this, this yeah. is really important. This is the way the profession, the political consulting profession, has changed since I was a younger person. The art and the skill of the political consultant when I was yeah. young was persuasion. We yeah. focused on persuasion. Now, young people in the business, they're not they're not versed or trained or understand anything about persuasion. Right. Right. It's all mobilization. Right. And so and, and both of them are required to a certain extent, but the question becomes where are we heading with this in a democracy? Mm. And mathematically, what we have learned is it's a lot easier to mobilize people based off of their own pre-existing beliefs than it is trying to persuade somebody, even if even if those beliefs are quantifiably not true. <sighs> so it's 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 uh, there's there's uh, uh, again another argument. This is happening on its own. Yes. Right? Yes. This, this push towards fake news and believing stuff which is quantifiably not true is not a new phenomenon <laughs> in democracy at all. It yeah. has been with us since day one. Yeah. In fact, this is why the founders built a lot of the guardrails that they did is yeah. they knew that this was manipulable through the yeah. through these nefarious actors and nefarious means. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, am I concerned about it? Of course I'm concerned about it. I'm concerned about a lot of it. But what I do want to always push is there's also the likelihood that there are some efficiencies and some good things that can happen as a result of this. When you can start quantifying where the American public is genuinely, truly at in a, in a guaranteed certifiable way, some of this stuff is simply not debatable that we're debating mm. right now. Yeah. And that, I don't know if that's a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And we should uh, make this clear for listeners. We're still in the stage with AI systems where, you know, sometimes the output isn't great. It can be clunky, right? If you've ever used one of these tools, it can sound robotic and repetitive. Um, And so you might be thinking, yeah, it's not going to be able to move a diehard MAGA voter and get them to vote for AOC in a house race, right? But the point is, it doesn't need to. the elections are won on the margins, especially now. It doesn't need to. 
there, we, th- you only need tiny, tiny incremental changes in very specific places in order to have a thunderous impact. So like, just, just keep that in mind. It doesn't mean like turning the whole country against one candidate or another. You know, we're not talking about that. Um, so anyway, Hagar, you, we're, we're not, we're not, not talking about that. We're, not, we're also not, not talking about that. That's fair. But also like, I wonder if you were thinking about foreign influence at all as, as we were talking about this, Hagar, and, well, so, and does any of this re- make you want to revisit our earlier conversation about China? <laughs> well, my, my view is that I'm much more alarmist about AI. Of course, I agree that the train has left the station and and that there are, of course, going to be benefits, but I am much more alarmist at its detrimental side. And, and the reason is, here's the thing when I, when, you know, when I read about Clogger, um, first of all, I hated that it was out there, that this, that this hypothetical yeah. company was written about in detail because I was like, great, now somebody's going to create this thing. By the, the way, re- there are, there are political consultants out there right now who are trying to figure out how to do this. 100%. They're no already doubt. doing this. Yeah. I have no doubt because why wouldn't they? I mean, it's a yeah. genius idea. And the thing is, the reason, and this gets to a fundamental point that that you see over and over again, and this is what concerns me domestically about AI and you know all generative and synthetic media, is that the legal system to deal with this is oh. not there. And it is going to take forever to develop. And this technology is developing way faster than than the legal side can keep up. And it 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 spans a it, it it's going to interfere in every angle of our life as yeah. a professor already we we don't really know i'm going to put it in my syllabus like you're not allowed to use chat gpt and if i catch you you know you're 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 out of the class but and i and and for every student listening i am certain i can guess <laughs> if you've used chat gpt but also it's not that easy if you're you know if you're skilled at it or sophisticated right. at it you know and it goes for example one of the biggest issues that you hear now in the creator world and the music world is copyright related to AI generated music. There was a song that was created by like a teenager that used the voices of Drake and The Weeknd and the song went viral on TikTok. And obviously they got no financial benefit from that. The the musicians, just their voices were used. And now their folks are pursuing legal action. And apparently there's no legal basis because there is no protection of for copyright for the using someone's voice. Okay, well, for AI, that's everything because that means you could create any video or any phone call with somebody's voice. And of course, it's going to be used for nefarious purposes. Hello? That, and this is the part that, this is why that furthers my alarmist view, which is that in 2016, we know for fact that voters were swayed by extremely badly done, clunky advertisements done by, by the Russian government and Chinese government, but largely Russia, to sway people um, mostly against Hillary Clinton. And we know this, there have been reports on this. And I know when I saw those ads, I thought that they were pretty absurd, but we know how many people were swayed by that, which means that we as a country are not ready for this. And if it was like that back then, imagine now, we've already seen the example, the RNC put out a video, a campaign video that they said was AI generated, but I doubt a lot of people read that fine print they put out a video when Biden announced his uh, that he was running again officially, and the video paints a very awful picture of what wor- what the world would be like uh, if Biden were to win, and there's war with China and all these things, and it is a very lifelike video. It looks AI to someone mm-hmm. like me. I mean, I think a lot of people can tell, but if you look at it at quick glance, it is it is very sophisticatedly done, and so. 
No, I am terrified. And these things are not difficult. Even if they're clunky, a lot of people don't take the time to really question and be like, hmm, is that really real? Is that, does that person talk that way? I don't know. Maybe I should question this. No, they take it as, as face value, I- including very, by the way, educated people. I'm not trying to paint and, 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 folks into buckets. Um, I have heard over and over again, many educated people come to me and say, oh, well, I saw this on Facebook and, 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 mm. and it's so clearly not mm. true. So mm. when you add this to this and you talk about videos that could portray one or the other leader committing a crime that never existed, saying a racist, uh, something racist that never happened, the rule in communications is that people always pay attention to the first headline and they of never course. question it. Of they course. rarely pay attention to the follow-up, even if the follow-up nowadays is done within seconds on Twitter, by which the, I refuse to way, call X. <laughs> by the way, to that, to that point, that's just not, like, that's the way newsrooms operate. I, I talked to this 20-year veteran investigative reporter from the New York Times about scandals and when they happen in, in politics. Uh, like, I, I asked him, so when... Uh, when a newsroom like breaks a scandal and then the person um, apologizes or it turns out that there was something untrue about the whatever, do they do they print a retraction? Do they do they cover it again in the same way? And he says they only ever cover the apology to the extent that it allows them to resurface the scandal in the first place. Like it is of course. All, like so uh, like the amount of damage that can be done lies spread faster than truth. We know this. Think about the October surprises. <laughs> Just imagine yeah. the flood of October surprises that are coming in 2024. Like, yeah. oh, it's going to it's going to be very ugly and very very difficult. And you know, as a comms person, um, that's the class I teach at, at at Columbia is about communications. And the the classic rule for crisis communications was that you had to respond within 45 minutes. That's the golden rule, within 45 minutes. But that rule, I even hate teaching it because I tell mm. my students, I'm like, this is still the rule in textbooks, but it's almost as though these textbooks didn't factor in what it meant to have mm. social media um, or social media today. And so I tell people, it's not 45 minutes, it's 45 seconds. You got to get that. It has to be in the current news cycle, not the mm. next round of stories. Um, and and it has to be extremely aggressive. But it's rarely like that. Yeah. It's yeah. It's no. I'm very. Well, what very I what I what I do it. with what I do with my clients is we don't we don't even have a time frame. We have to respond by having more response. Yes. Not, yeah. Not quality you have to response. Bombard. Mm-hmm. You have to, you yeah, you have to bury, bury the opposition to kind of keep their attention focused. It's, yes. it's not the way we used to have to respond and how we're going to frame this, get this approved, kick it out. What do we get it out on? Now it's just keep firing, 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 firing. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's, that's right. how you win now is you keep the focus and attention over Flood here. Flood the zone. Over there. Flood the zone. That's right. <sighs> Who's that famous actress who everybody thought was a hermaphrodite and she wasn't? And <laughs> people, still, people still think she is, and she's not. And again, this is a perfect Hold example of people on. believing. The Mike looks very shocked at me. That is a perfect example of people believing the first headline. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis? Yes. She's not a hermaphrodite <laughs> for everyone out there. I want to set the record straight. She's awesome. Well, she could be awesome whether or not she's a hermaphrodite. She is not a hermaphrodite. And that rumor went around before social media existed. Snopes has a fact check on it. <laughs> yeah, but this is an example of people paying attention to a first headline, and no matter what is said after, they it just 
It but, but this it's, is but this, this this is actually a really important example. Yeah. Yeah. B- yeah. Because it existed before social media. Yeah. yeah. And remember, the Spanish American War was the result of fake news. Ooh. Hearst wanted to sell papers. The attack. I did not know that. Uh, that, that that the Spanish made on American soldiers never happened, guys. Oh. It was a lie. So so we've gone to war over the, this is not new. The speed yeah. at which is dangerous, true. And I'm not I'm not trying to mitigate it. Sure, but sure. what I'm saying is as a human species, we've gone through most of this stuff before in different iterations. Not always the pace. But I do believe we've got the capacity to make most of these adjustments. Now, maybe that's me just trying to – that's my survival instinct by saying the end is not coming before Christmas. <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But you know what? If I'm wrong, we're all wrong. It doesn't matter anyway. So I'm just choosing um, to say let's look back historically and recognize how effective the rumor mills were in the late 1700s and early 1800s as a new democracy. This stuff was devastating. People sleeping with their slaves, bastard children. This stuff would spread like wildfire. None of it's true, by the way, attacks. This was common activity. And there was no way to respond to that. There was no, there was no response mechanism yeah, back right. in that day. And so we've, we, but we've adjusted and, and democracy adjusted with it. Society adjusted with it. And I'm not suggesting again that this isn't the Omega point. This isn't the end game. Maybe it is. I just, history would suggest. It's probably not. I saw Goody Proctor with the devil. Hmm. (laughs) What was that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, to Mike's Mike's point, the genocide committed by Myanmar's military against the Rohingya um, was sparked by a rumor on Facebook. And Facebook has since, and they've admitted that, and they've since put in place a lot of um, measures. They've beefed up their offices in the region. It was just, they didn't. They didn't know the yeah. cultural issues there, the religious issues. Um, so they've put in places, they've put in place measures to prevent rumors of that kind from exploding that could then lead to violence and in this case led to an entire genocide. But <sighs> um, but yeah, I mean I think that goes both to both points, you know, that it, the, it, thing- the speed at which is very risky. But yes, there's also efforts to rectify. The thing that I'm afraid of, and I know we gotta wrap up here in a minute, but the thing that I'm afraid of is a backlash to all of this in in a in a heavy-handed censorship kind of way that is uh that produces illiberal tendencies in otherwise free societies i i'm i'm worried about that that's that's china yeah Yeah, that's i mean that's that's what the authoritarian world is 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 going to try to do i don't think it's successful but they're going to try to do it yeah for sure for sure (sighs) all right politicology plus what a wild ride Today, <laughs> actually, there's I think, a lot on this one. This was not only a wild roller coaster; this was a long, yeah, wild a long roller, roller coaster. coaster. Yeah. We'll put this one out on the on the main um, public feed today. Uh, so, so hey, everybody, this is what we normally do in Politicology Plus. <laughs> uh, if you have thoughts, uh, questions, advice for us, topic recommendations, we have an inbox just for you. That is plus at Politicology. Dot com. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>